0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Okay. Not, not bad. We'll try again. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Good, good. Uh, all right. We're going to uh, continue in our series on 1 uh, Corinthians. Um, and today uh, we have the privilege of what happens when you preach through books of the Bible is we talk about things that are important that maybe we wouldn't talk about normally. So today we get the, uh, the gift and the privilege to talk about sex my hope is it will be slightly less awkward than the one time you talked about it in middle school and also slightly more helpful, okay? So, uh, so that, that's the hope here, uh, or, or slightly uh, less awkward and, and, and increasingly more helpful than the one time that uh, your, your parent talked to you about it for about two, three minutes and they left the room. You're like, I still have a few questions, uh, but, but they're like, this is done and, and now you're on your own, good, good luck. Um, and so this is, a, uh, obviously, anytime we, we talk about uh, sex or sexuality, the topic brings up so many things that bubble to the surface. Uh, uh, Wounds. Regrets. Sense of shame. Fear. Or sense of longing. So there's all all sorts of things uh, that bubble to the surface when we speak about uh, this particular topic. But God's word is always for our good and for our comfort, for our encouragement, and for directing us into something that's meant to help us flourish. And so as we come to this topic, I just want to acknowledge that there are all of those things that are at play, maybe depending on our stories, depending on our backgrounds, that are bubbling up in us just even as we broach the topic. Okay? So I want us to, to acknowledge that and to know that. And so my hope is that uh, this passage, we will feel both the tenderness and the truthfulness that are in this passage that also reflect the tenderness and the truthfulness that is inherent to Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's look at the, let's look at the text. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians uh, 6, uh, verse 7 through chapter 5, Verse 5. Now, to set the context for us, this is a church in a diverse, dense, global city where really anything went, anything would go uh, in terms of uh, matters of behavior uh, or, or matters of sexual ethics or sexuality. And so, as we looked at uh, the previous week, the Apostle Paul is having to uh, to correct uh, a, a real matter of sin within the Corinthian church where there was a case of a man uh, who was sexually engaged with his stepmother. And the Apostle Paul says, Man, not even the non believers in the city tolerate such a thing. What What is happening? Here. And the Apostle Paul then uses that as an opportunity not to speak about the, uh, the, the sexual ethics of the world, but really to speak into family matters within the church. And so that's the context that we're in, that, that we are looking here at what it looks like for the people of God to follow God in every area of their lives. And so the Apostle Paul gives correction and guidance to this church that was confused in many ways. So let's read uh, the text and then we'll work through it in a couple of different ways. So the Apostle Paul is going to pick up in uh, chapter 6, verse 7, and notice he's going to tie greed uh, in connection with sexuality. He's going to tie uh, uh, greed in connection to sex, both of these things that that bubble up from within us. And he's going to speak to the lawsuits that are happening within the church and say, why why are you doing such a thing? This is not in step with who you are. Greed is not in step with who you are, and neither is this activity that you're engaging in sexually. That's not in step with, with who you are. So the Apostle Paul writes this, verse 7 of chapter 6, to have any lawsuits at all with anyone, with one another, is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Be you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor uh, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A couple of quick remarks before we dive into this text wholesale. There are many things happening here. A couple of quick remarks uh, before we we jump in. Uh, Verse 9, there are probably a couple of things that stick out to you. Let me just say this uh, off the jump. This is not a text about gay people. That's, That's not what this passage is about. Paul has in mind here as he lists out all of these different things in verse 9, things that he says these are are activities that are not in step with the way of the kingdom. When Paul lists these things, he does not have in his mind orientation. He has in his mind activity. This is not a text about gay people, and an important thing to be said is heterosexuality, if we were to summarize the teachings of the Bible, heterosexuality is not the automatic ticket into the kingdom of God. Neither Neither is being attracted to the same sex or both sexes an automatic denial into the kingdom of God. It's very important that we understand that. The way that anyone and everyone who would enter the kingdom of God, the way that they enter, is not through orientation, is not through activity, but it is through repentance Turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And this is why Paul lists out these things that are not in step with the kingdom of God. And then immediately in verse 11, look at how he encourages them. He says, And such were some of you, but guess what? You had a collision course. You had an introduction with the washing, the cleansing, the redeeming, the forgiving grace of Jesus. And so it's important for us to understand this that heterosexuality is not the fast track to heaven, and neither is an attraction to the same sex or both sexes, a rejection into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I know that in this room, there are people who are attracted to the same sex exclusively or to both. I want you to know that you're not alone. I want you to know that Jesus is for you. And I want you to know that this, king, that this church will help you and walk with you where you are to take whatever the next step is in your discipleship to Jesus. And I also want everyone in this room to know this as well, that any and all of us are included in verse 9. What's so funny about verse 9 <laughs> is that it really doesn't need a list. After the Apostle Paul says the sexually immoral, he could have just stopped there. And when he repeats this, this similar sentence in Ephesians, he, he just says the sexual immoral. And really what this means is, this is such a large, large, gigantic term. It really means any sex outside of Genesis 2.24 and 2.25, any sex outside of the one flesh union of a, of a husband and a wife is considered sexual sin. From thoughts to lusting in the heart, as Jesus described, anything is, is encapsulated in that term. And so really the Apostle Paul doesn't have to say much more, but he, he just does for the purpose of helping, right? But, but all of us are included in verse 9. All of us that have gone through the stormy waters of puberty find ourselves under the heading of the sexually immoral. Anyone here has not yet gone through the stormy waters known as puberty? The voice is still dropping, right? Okay, so all of us, All of us are under that category of the sexually immoral. It is such a gigantic and encompassing term. It is not possible to pass through the stormy waters of of puberty and to think or be sinless in regards to our sexual desires. No one in this room has holy sexual desires, or has been completely holy in their embodying of what the kingdom of God calls us to be when it comes to our sexuality. And so we are all sitting under the same tent. The second thing I want us to, say, to see is that though we are all sitting under the same tent of verse 9, in Jesus Christ there is unending mercy, grace, and forgiveness for each and every single one of us that would grab hold of it. And the last introductory remark is this. Uh, we will say more on sex next week. Let me pray. Um, <laughs> the Apostle Paul continues. This passage doesn't say everything about sex. This is, he is addressing specific questions to the Corinthians. So we're going to talk more next week, particularly about singleness uh, and, and, and sex. So, so more, more, more to come. Uh, but let me give you the big idea, and then we're going to jump proper into this text. The big idea for this message in this passage is really this. Because Jesus Christ indwells our bodies, Christ shapes what we do with our bodies. Let me put it another way. Similar, but with different phrasing. Because our bodies are united to Jesus, our sexuality is to be shaped by kingdom realities, not cultural stories. Because we are united to Jesus, our sexuality is to be shaped by kingdom realities, not cultural stories. I want you to think about this. When it comes to sex, there are many narratives that are being sold to us, packaged to us, promoted to us. Anywhere and everywhere you go, somebody is trying to get you to buy into a particular story or narrative about sex. Everywhere you go. Sex according to blank. Everywhere you go. The question is, what story or narrative about sex will we buy into? And then based on what we buy into, what will we then become? The stories of sex according to. Let me give you some of these stories of sex that we've seen in Western culture. The story of sex according to morality. The story of sex according to morality. See this in the, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, really right up to the middle edge of the 60s. The story of sex according to morality was this. Wait! The story of sex according to morality. Don't do it! Sexual restraint under this story. Sexual restraint is to be desired. Sexual expression was dirty. That's the story of morality. The the reality of sex according to the story of liberation, which we see happen in the 60s with the sexual revolution, was something much different. The story of sex according to the narrative of liberation is this, do whatever you wish as long as it's consensual. And so it doesn't matter what you're doing, as long as it's consensual, (laughs) right? Right? That, that's, that's that narrative, that's that story, right? So, so sexual expression under this story is applauded, and sexual restraint is despised. You see this even, even in, in modern culture, we see this even presently, where, where a celebrity will, be, um, will, will you know, divulge that, you know, actually, uh, you know, I've, I've never had sex, I'm, I'm still a virgin, and you would be shocked at how many people attack them for that. Like, do you really know what you're doing to yourself? Like, you, you, you're like restraining yourself. And so, under this story and ethic, that, that, is, that is just silliness, right? But under the story of morality, that, would be to, that was to be praised. Do we see the shift? Right? So, we have the story of morality, the story of liberation. And then we have kind of this, um, the, the child of the story of liberation. This is what we live in now, which is sex according to expressive individualism, which is do whatever you wish as long as it's not somebody else's view. Do whatever you wish as long as it is consistent with you and it's not imposed upon you from outside of you. This is sort of the the next thing from the story of liberation, which is really, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, but as long as it is really in step with who you are and nobody kind of influenced you in this way, that is fantastic. Now, all of these stories, the reason they're important is because all of these stories are just floating in the air of our culture. It is impossible for any of us not to be impacted by some of these stories. It's impossible for any of us not to be shaped by some degree or another by some of these stories. And these stories color and shape how we think about sex and then how we act out those thoughts and desires. And the story that the Corinthians were in is very similar to the story that we are in. They were in a story, uh, a narrative of liberated, uh, expressive individualism. Do whatever you wish, as long as it's consensual, as long as it's not somebody else's views, and as long as it's consistent with what is really inside of you. But because, because the Corinthians were followers of Jesus, Paul speaks God's loving word of redirection, encouragement, and correction. In chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, Paul already tells us, I am not concerned with what people are doing outside of the church. We judge in the church. I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about you, the people of God, how you reflect and live out Jesus. And so Paul is going to correct and redirect them. And this is deeply important for us because the Corinthians are living out the story of expressive individualism, the most tempting story for each of us. And he's going to show them that because they've been washed, because they've been sanctified, because they've been justified by Jesus and the Holy Spirit, his encouragement to them regarding sex is this, live out who you are in Jesus. Live out the kingdom reality of who you are in Jesus and push to the side the competing cultural narratives because they don't describe who you really are. They don't describe what's really true of you. Live out who you are in Jesus. This is important for us in many ways because if we take our sexual ethics from the kingdom or from our culture, what we decide is a fork in the road moment and it will determine if sex in our lives is a gift or if sex becomes a controlling God. Let me give you this quote from Ronald Rolheiser, a, a, a Christian writer, thinker, and counselor. He says this about sex. He says, Sex is not just like anything else, despite our culture's protest. Sex's is fire is so powerful, so precious, so close to the heart and soul of a person, and so godly that it either gives life or takes it away. It can never be casual, but it is either a sacrament, a holy thing, or a destructive act. So, sex is so powerful, so deep, so rich, so much like a fire, that we have to be careful that we use it in a way that doesn't bring damage and destruction, but in a way that gives life and brings flourishing. And the story that we buy into around sex will determine what that fork in the road begins to look like for us. So, a couple of things that we see uh, in this particular passage. Uh, One is this. This. Paul is going to counter uh, two attitudes held by the Corinthians about the narrative of sex. And these are, these are the two attitudes he's going he's to encounter. Uh, he's going to rather uh, counter, correct. Uh, attitude one, the culture of Corinth and the culture of our day says this, sex is casual and biological. We see this in the text when, uh, when Paul uh, quotes this uh, in verse 12, all things are lawful for me. This is a saying from the Corinthians that they took from Paul. Paul applied it to food, sacrifice to idols. He said, you're under Jesus' grace. It's okay for you to just eat as as you need to eat. Don't worry about it. You're under grace now, right? And so the Corinthians took that, like uh, like good sinners, like all of us. We, We take something and say, I like this. I would love to apply it over here. And so that's what they did. He said, all things are lawful. Well, I can eat whatever I want. I can also do whatever I want over here. And that's what they were doing. And notice this other thing that they say, Uh, this other uh, quote phrase, this kind of saying, verse 13, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. Here is why they bring this up in the context of sexuality. This was a saying in Corinth regarding uh, food and sex, that just as food is an appetite, when when you're hungry, you eat. Sex is an appetite. When you feel sexy, you sex, right? That's what is happening here. That's what they think. That it is an appetite, it is casual, it is biological, it's the thing that you do when you feel like doing it, so you do it. And Paul is countering that narrative that sex is just simply casual and biological. He's saying that's a cultural narrative, that's a Corinthian narrative, that's a 21st century narrative, but that is not a kingdom narrative. The other, the other uh, cultural narrative that they buy into, we see this in, uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, uh, the saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. The other narrative that some of the Corinthians were buying into, sex is an appetite, just do it whenever you want. The other narrative was sex is dirty, even married people shouldn't do it. So Paul has to correct both of these narratives that, that are incorrect and bring them into the kingdom reality. And in these two attitudes, Paul is trying to help the Corinthians shift from thinking in a Corinthian way about a very important thing from God, sex, and to begin to help them think in a kingdom way about a very important gift from God, sex. Now, let me paint a picture of the first century sexual ethic and why they bought into the story that sex is just casual and biological. In the first century, much like we think now, we think of sex as simply a physical thing that really has no bearing, no impact on our person outside of having an impact on our body. And so in the first century, in, uh, in, in the Corinthian culture and in slash Roman culture, uh, here is how sex is casual and biological. Here's how it, ple- how it fleshed out. It was no big deal, as we see from the text, it was no big deal for a man, married or not, to be with a prostitute. You wouldn't, you wouldn't blink an eye at this. Temple prostitution, including male and female prostitutes, was common practice. It was a way of worshiping uh, pagan gods. Married men were not respected if they slept with another man's wife, but it was permissible, normal, and in some ways encouraged that married men were with prostitutes because, again, sex is an appetite, so fulfill it as long as it's not somebody else's wife, they were encouraged, it was permissible and normal for them to be with prostitutes, to be with female slaves, and often to engage in sexual acts with young male adolescents or younger uh, uh, children that they had as slaves in their homes. Common practice. And so, this was just normal. Nero, who ruled Rome had an a, had a, uh, adolescent boy castrated and married him and kept him as a, as a sexual slave and toy in his home. This is the cultural waters of the first century. And so Paul is count, countering a giant narrative that says sex is an appetite, sex is biological, sex is casual, do with it as you please. Paul says that is not the way in the kingdom of God. And this is why Paul uses that term, sexual immorality. Anything outside of the husband and wife uh, narrative of Genesis 2.24, that is sexual immorality. That, That is illicit sex. That is not what disciples of Jesus are called to embody and to live out because they have been made new by Jesus. And guess what? This narrative that sex is casual, that sex is biological, it is the same narrative that is being sold to us, marketed to us, every single place and where that we go. Right? If sex is casual and biological why wait for marriage? If sex is casual and biological, why not, when you feel lonely or bored, pull out that app and see which way you should swipe? If sex is casual and biological, what, what big deal is it if you're looking at porn consistently? Because really, it's just between you and the screen. It, it's just an appetite, so just, just feed it. But here's the problem. When we think of sex In these ways, it's a fire that is so powerful, if we don't have the right things around it, we end up getting burned. I mean, can we draw the connections between the explosion in awareness of sexual assault and the Me Too movement? Can we draw the lineage? Can we we see where have these seeds and these, these, these ideas been implanted in men that they can do as they please and that they own women or that they have the power to assert themselves in these ways? Where do these ideas come from? Do they not emerge from this idea that sex is an appetite? Do they not emerge downstream from an infatuation with pornography culturally that teaches us certain things, and then we begin to implement them and practice them as our minds are actually shifted biologically? So this narrative of sex liberating us by removing all restraints it actually does not really liberate us, but rather enslaves us further. I read an article. How many of you know Coachella? How many of you were there? Anyone there? If you were there and you didn't take your pastor, I'll be very upset. Um, I just read an article about a festival, and it's an article, um, I think, from Teen Vogue about uh, their reporters that were there, women who were there, and reporting how many times somebody just came up to them and grabbed them. And their reflections on that, and their wounds on that. I mean, we think that if we remove these parameters, everything will certainly become healthy, but we need to understand that this is a powerful thing, and because sex is a powerful thing, it requires more parameters that its power would be used rightly. And so Paul says this, "...the Christian vision of of sex and sexuality is not that it's cultural and biological, but that it is sacred and spiritual." Paul says it's casual, biological, just do whatever you want as long as it's consensual. But Paul says, no, because it's sacred and spiritual, you need more standards around it than just consent, because this is sacred and this is spiritual. Notice what he does in order to show this. He says this, "'Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ?' 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Again, quoting Genesis 2, 24, and 25. And here's what he's saying. The one flesh reality of sex is both physical and a metaphor. Uh, Obviously, in sex, two become one. I don't need to explain too much there. There is a physical reality to that statement, but there's also a spiritual metaphorical reality that two become one. And here's what one commentator says. Paul is describing a psychological insight into human sexuality that is altogether exceptional according to first century standards. Paul insists that sex is an act which engages and expresses the whole personality in such a way as to create a unique mode of self-disclosure and self-commitment. Paul says with this one flesh term that sex is so sacred, so spiritual, that it is an act not just of a physical uniting but is it an act of, of whole person self-giving whole person commitment through this sacred act another commentator puts it this way sex was invented was God's invented way for you to give yourself to someone else so deeply that it results in personal transformation and completion which is why then the christian vision of sex says do not have physical oneness sex unless you have whole life oneness, marriage. Because there is something spiritual that is happening in the one flesh physical reality. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, uh, wrote a book with with his wife called The Meaning of Marriage, and they describe it, uh, Tim Keller describes it this way, speaking about this passage. Uh, Keller uh, puts it this way. Keller says that God says, that's confusing. Keller says that God says, in these passages, you must never get physically naked and vulnerable with someone without becoming vulnerable in your whole life. You must not become physically vulnerable and hold on to your independence. You must become legally, economically, socially, emotionally, in every way committed. So if you're going to give your body, in the Christian vision, you don't give your body unless you are giving your whole self. Because sex is that sacred, that spiritual, and that uniting. This is why and maybe some of us know this by experience. This is why sex outside of marriage is deeply disorienting. You know, talk with people who said, man, I was with this person for a few years, da, 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 and we broke up, and I just, I just cannot stop thinking about them. Right? And we, we, we think of all the memories that we have, but we don't think about the sex that we had. That there is actually a spiritual uniting that is happening through this one flesh act, and then we wonder, why do I feel so attached to this person? I feel attached in this way, but I know they're not committed to me in any other way, and so I feel disjointed. I have to almost cut yourself off from the committing power of sex because you really don't know if they're going to call you back because there is no other apparatus of commitment other than the fact that you gave them their body and you received theirs in exchange. We almost have to cut ourselves off from the uniting power of sex when we take it outside of the confines of marriage because we don't want to get hurt. Paul is showing us that sex is sacred and spiritual. Notice this. It, you see it actually in the warning. Paul says, don't have sex with a prostitute because it's bad. He doesn't say that. We, we know it's bad. He says, don't have sex with a prostitute because if you have sex with somebody, you become one flesh with them. Paul's reasoning is because sex unites on a spiritual level. Therefore, don't just do it any place, anywhere with anyone. Do it in the context of Genesis two twenty-four and 25. Now, all of this, you may be thinking several different thoughts. One of those thoughts may be this. I have strayed so far from what this text is talking about. You're thinking, I have strayed so far from the kingdom vision of sex. My friend, if that is what you are thinking, I want to encourage you with verse 11. You are washed sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That is so encouraging. Let me just remind you that Jesus Christ is the most tender and truthful person with sinners that has ever walked on earth. There is an unending stream of grace and redemption for you in Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, you may be feeling a little bit good about yourself. Well, I haven't done all of these things. I have seven purity rings on one finger, right? Maybe maybe that's some of you far in the back in the balcony. You're like, I'm away from all of these sinners. If that's what you're thinking, let me humble you. Because none of us are outside of the category of the sexually immoral. And any way in which we have walked in God's wisdom with any shred of holiness is only by His grace. There is no no boasting. So let me comfort and humble you depending on how you are feeling. The second reality I want us to see, and I'll pick up my pace here, um, is about our bodies. It's about our bodies. Take a second, look at your body. Just put the hands out. Just look at it real quick. That's the weirdest thing I've ever asked anyone to do in a message. But just look at, look at this remarkable thing that is a body. The Heidelberg Catechism, um, so we have teaching and training about theology, starts with this. Uh, uh, what is your only comfort in life or death? And then the, the, the first answer in response is this, that I belong body and soul to my Lord Jesus Christ. And then it goes on for 40 paragraphs. Um, but there's a there's body and soul. We belong to Jesus' body and soul. Let's be honest. When we think of belonging to Jesus, we mostly think of our souls, but we don't really think of our bodies as belonging to him, do we? We really think of our bodies belong to us, right? Which is natural. I, I see my body. I see myself. I don't see Jesus all the time. I don't see a price tag on me, so I think my body is mine. If I want to fill it with Doritos and old Gatorade, right, that's my prerogative, right? What, my body belongs to me. If I want to work out, I'm going to work out. If I say, you know what, I think not working out is actually very attractive. I'm never going to work out again, right? All of those things are my decisions regarding my body, right? But Paul is showing us something here that not only is sex sacred and spiritual, but another kingdom reality regarding sex is this, is that our bodies are actually united to Jesus, which runs counter to the cultural story that says our bodies just belong to us, And Paul shows us this in verse 13. He says, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is what this means, that Jesus is pro-body, and the body isn't meant for sexual sin, but it's meant for God. Sexual sin, the passage says, sexual sin is, is, is done against our body while all other sin is outside of our body. What Paul is saying here is that sexual sin goes against the design of our body. Our body was designed for God and as a dwelling place for God. So understand this, that your body as a disciple of Jesus, your body is a container in which Jesus Christ is displayed through your life and through your actions. Right? Think about this. Following Jesus is an embodied thing. You don't just talk about it, you do it. So your body is the arena in which the the power and the person of Christ is put on full display. So your body is for Jesus. Not only is your body for Jesus— Your body matters. It has value. It has glorious capacity because in it, the glory and the life and the teachings of Jesus can be manifested in your body. What an opportunity! What a thing to seize. Not only this, but your body has a great future. Look at verse 14. The Lord raised Jesus and he will raise us also. Your body has a future. Greek thought was that the body was a prison and the soul was the thing to be valued. But your body will continue on into eternity. How how would the choices we make with our bodies change and shift if we remember that our bodies have a future? Right? If we buy into the narrative that we live 70 years and then die, well then yeah, I guess we better do whatever we can to have fun with our body because that is it. But a disciple of Jesus in the kingdom of reality believes that our body has a future. Notice that Paul repeats this, this phrase in verse 15, 16, and 19. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? The Corinthians, probably much like us, have a lack of understanding when it comes to a theology of their body. For the disciple of Jesus, our body doesn't just belong to us, it belongs to Jesus So much so that Jesus lives in us. This is the doctrine of union with Christ. Notice that Paul says this, Do you not know in 19 that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? God has made his temple in part among his church, but also individually in anyone who trusts in him. God dwells in you. Jesus lives in you, so much so that Paul can say this, for it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me, in me, which then leads us to think, if Christ lives in me, then I take Christ with me wherever I go, so should I take Christ and join him to a prostitute? Should I take Christ And bring him along with me for the ride into sexual immorality. Should I take Christ with me into a lawsuit with another believer into the sin of greed? Should I take Christ with me in as I live a life of worshiping my idols? Should I take Christ with me? No, never, Paul says. Never. Perish the thought. Kill the thought. No way. Because Christ lives in me. There is a different view of the body for the disciple of Jesus. The other reality around our bodies is this, is that our bodies are not our own, but look at how Paul ends this section, verse 19, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, with your body. Our bodies were bought with a price. Culture tells us your body is yours, do with it as you please. You want to get shredded? Get shredded. You want more Doritos? Get more Doritos. Whatever it is, do with it as you please. It belongs to you, but the, the kingdom of God teaches us that our bodies belong to our Savior who purchased our bodies. Or think about this. I want you to imagine this is a complete fantasy, okay? Just imagine this. You own a single-family home in Somerville. Amen? Can I get one amen, please? Amen. There we go. Thank you. You own it. Not only do you own it, but you are renting it at an exorbitant price. Amen? Amen. You You have turned the tables. The oppressed has become the oppressor. What a great day. So now you rent to them. And you say, guess what? Next year that rent's going on. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but you own, right? So you own the house, okay? You own, you're renting, you go to check on the house, because you own the house. You pull up into the driveway, you check it, and you see the tenants right out front, and they wave and you wave back, but as they turn, you realize they're holding a sledgehammer. And so you go, oh, okay. And then you look up a little bit and you realize there's a giant hole in the wall. Not only is there a hole in the wall, but the beautiful home that you own that was a nice light pink has now been painted a, a crusty poop brown. So not only has he painted poop brown, but there's a hole in the wall. And the hole, you can tell because you're smart, you can tell the hole is from the sledgehammer. So you jump out of the car real quick. You come and you talk to them. You say, first thing's out of your mouth, right? What are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm taking down this front wall, already took down the wall in the kitchen, and we're just kind of changing a few things. So you stifle the profanity as a disciple of Jesus, and the next thing you say is, you don't own this. You're renting. I own this. You sort of own it, but only for as long as I tell you that you own it. You don't have the permissions to remodel this home. Paul is showing us something similar with these verses that our bodies are ours with a lowercase o, but our bodies are his with a capital H. Jesus owns our bodies because Jesus bought us. Jesus paid a price to claim us, to forgive us, to redeem us, to bring bring us into his kingdom. So now with every fiber of our being, with joy we say, you bought me, you love me. How can I use everything that I am to honor my Savior, my owner, my friend, and my Redeemer. There's a new mind frame around the body for the disciple of Jesus. The last narrative that we have to counter comes in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. The cultural story is this, is that sex is mainly for our fulfillment. The kingdom narrative is this, though. The kingdom reality is this, is that sex is also for our fulfillment, but mostly it's for our formation, Notice what Paul says about uh, marital sex here. He counters the lie that marital sex is is dirty by saying that marital sex is good. Notice what he says. He says that the husband should give uh, to his wife the conjugal rights. They should have sex. They shouldn't withhold that. And likewise, the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive each other except for a time right? That Satan wouldn't tempt you. Here's what Paul is trying to show regards to marital sex is that marital sex is not for your personal fulfillment, but marital sex is for mutuality and building up. There is a mutuality here. There's a mutuality here in these verses that is contrary to first century. First century would have said, yeah, the wife's body definitely belongs uh, to the husband, but would never have said the husband's body belongs to the wife. Never would have said such a thing. Paul is bringing a new train of thought here. It says this is a mutual. This is a mutual shared ownership. You don't get to come and insist on your way. This is a shared partnership. You belong to one another. Not you belong to her. So he teaches a mutuality here. This uh, mirrors Ephesians 5, where we are to think of our bodies, not just as our own, but to think of the body of our wives and to treat it the way we would want our bodies to be treated and vice versa. There is a mutuality here because if sex, if we buy into the narrative that sex is mainly for our fulfillment, we will withhold it in a power play in marriage. Or we will use it to get what we want in a relationship. We will use it when we feel lonely or bored. But if it is for our formation, it is for mutuality within the context of marriage. We will use it for self-giving. We will use it for building up. We will use it in a God-honoring way. And notice what Paul is showing us here. He is trying to help us model Christ in the marriage bed by not centering on fulfilling self, but on building up and serving through mutuality. So when we think about narrative of sex we have to ask ourselves what story are we going to follow you have made that decision in your past but you can make it for your future what narrative of sex are you going to follow and not only that what will you become based on the narrative that you follow what happens downstream from thinking that sex is just for your fulfillment What happens downstream from thinking sex is simply a way to be liberated? But what happens downstream when you see that Jesus loves you and wants to lead you to honor him with your body? What happens downstream from that? What type of person will you become? I want us to close with this. Jesus and the woman at the well. Do you remember the woman at the well? Do you remember the the thing that she was battling in her past and in her present? Do you remember how Jesus comes to her with the truthfulness and says, yo, you got like five husbands. And she's like, yeah, how did you know? And he doesn't condemn her, but tells her that the, the water of satisfaction that she's been looking for in all these other places is found in him. Jesus is incredibly tender with all sorts of sinners, and he's incredibly truthful with them as well. Whatever you're feeling, whatever you're sitting with, whatever you're sitting under right now, Jesus is tender and truthful with you in this very moment. Not only is he tender and truthful with you, but Jesus Christ, verse 19 and 20, Jesus Christ gave his body to wash you from your sins to sanctify you, to declare you holy, and to make you righteous in the sight of God, and to welcome you into his kingdom, even though your decisions and your actions, much like mine, would leave you disqualified. This is the self-giving love of Jesus who is tender, truthful, and sacrificial to the sexually broken and to sinners of all persuasion. What is left for us is simply to do this. What Paul wants us to do is to really feel, verse 11, that in Christ we are washed, we are sanctified, and we are justified through Jesus. And guess what? Now he lives in us, and so we live in a new way. He gave his body for us, and so we seek by his help and his grace to glorify him with our bodies. When we fail, guess what Jesus has waiting for us? Mercy and grace. And when we grow in this area, guess what the power was? Not our wisdom, not our strength, but his mercy and his grace. What narrative will you follow? Who will you entrust your body to? Whose wisdom will you place your body under? The one who gave himself for you? Our culture who wants your money? Who will you entrust your whole being to? That is the question for us. Jesus says we are washed, sanctified, and justified in him if we will receive it. Let's take a moment to pray in silent prayer and reflection. I want to encourage you as you reflect silently to, to really go before God. If there are things to confess, confess. If there are, is, is, is uh, crying out to, to be done silently within, within your, your spirit, do it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I would encourage you if you feel comfortable to simply say, Jesus, if any of this is true, if you are real in any way, shape, or form, would you make that known to me somehow? Take a moment to to pray in, in prayer and confession before God, and I will lead us in prayer aloud.